welcome to the Evoke Ag Podcast, the show where we take a look at the ag tech and food innovations changing the future of farming. Hello and welcome to the Evoke Ag Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Honor. Today, we bring you our VOCAG and Food Futurist collaboration series with Professor Andy Lowe, exploring solutions today that will help drive sustainable food systems tomorrow. In this episode, we take a look into a sustainable greenhouse solution for hot and dry coastal regions, often where conventional agriculture would otherwise be impossible. Here, Andy speaks to Charlie Payton, the founder of Seawater Greenhouse, a company that designs greenhouses that are powered by sunlight, utilises seawater to water plants, and also create a cooler and humid environment where plants can thrive and reduce evapotranspiration by up to 90%. Today, Seawater Greenhouse's greenhouse technology has been implemented in some of the hottest and driest places in the world, such as Abu Dhabi, Oman, Somaliland, and here in Australia in Port Augusta for Sundrop Farms. Here Andy and Charlie talk about the novel greenhouse design and other solutions to help tackle climate change within agriculture. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Charlie Payton, welcome to the Evoke Ag podcast series. Well, thank you very much, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Look, it's a a pleasure to uh, be able to talk to you today. So you're um, you're founder of Seawater Greenhouse and royal designer for industry. How does how does one get a title of royal designer for industry? Do you know I've got no idea. Um, <laughs> it's I was I was proposed by somebody who was a fellow engineer. I said, and he told me he was going to present me, uh, propose me to be a, a royal designer for industry to the faculty which is a faculty of the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts. And I said to him, you can't do that. I'm a rubbish designer. <laughs> and he said, well, so am I, but it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> so they, it, has a, it has a broader remit. Yeah, so it's a bit like a, a poet a laureate. It's uh, like, a, yeah, a recognised uh, position of authority in your particular uh, area. Yeah, Sort of, sort of, yes. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so tell us, um, tell us a bit about uh, seawater greenhouses and how you kind of solve the perennial problem of having access to enough cheap energy and water to cost-effectively grow plants. Well... Um, we have enough water on the planet to irrigate as much as you could possibly want. Mm. Uh, There's no shortage of seawater. And if we use it till the cows come home, it's not going to run out because people will tell you that, oh, you've got to be careful with with water because it's a finite resource. But it's not a finite resource. It goes around in circles. You you irrigate plants with it. The plants transpire the water. The water goes up into water vapour. It becomes a cloud and it comes back as rain somewhere. Hmm. So the difficulty is, if you like, that uh, desalination uh, is a a relatively energy-intensive process, but it is getting better all the time. Um, Currently, the best we can do is produce, say, a cubic metre of water at a cost of around a dollar. One US dollar, one Australian dollar. Some people have done it at less cost than that, but so it's still 
relatively expensive, but I pay I pay about five dollars a cubic meter for water here in London uh, to the Water Authority, and that's rainfall that they've collected and put in pipes and pressurized, and so it's 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 a cost I think that is a that we just have to bear. We have to we have to bite the bullet on that. Um, but to make the water go further, we've developed a process of evaporative cooling where we use seawater, which we trickle over evaporators, which are rather difficult to describe. We often call them Weetabix. They're like sort of huge blown up blocks of Weetabix, sort of two meters high by one meter wide. And they've got a corrugated cardboard structure. And we trickle the seawater down this cardboard, which is a kind of blotting paper. The air blows through, it evaporates the water, which cools the air and makes it more humid. Hmm. And those two things reduce the amount of water that a plant needs, maybe by tenfold, uh, because we're reducing the whole game, actually, is how do you reduce plant transpiration so that the plant grows better with less. But it still needs some fresh water to irrigate the plant. Hmm. So it's really uh, a solid understanding of kind of the plant physiology, uh, what what the plants really need, then combined with a, a kind of engineering solution to deliver uh, that bespoke uh, to the plant. Yeah, plants are very clever things. They're much cleverer than we sort of give them credit for. Uh, and they work out strategies depending on what the conditions are. Um, so plants will grow in a range of sort of extreme temperatures. Um, in the UK, uh, we get virtually no growth at all in the, in the winter months uh, because it's too cold. So the temperature needs to be above, let's say, 16. Uh, and the ideal temperature for most crops, tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, that sort of thing, is 20, around 20 degrees, where you get the maximum growth and the maximum water use efficiency. If the temperature goes up to 30 degrees, the plant will continue to grow, uh, but it'll grow less, it'll grow more slowly, um, and it'll use a lot more water. Hmm. So it, the trick is to optimize that um, uh, the, the environment, the climate for the crop through evaporative cooling. So that that's all all theory. All sounds sounds good. Uh, sounds good in practice. Uh, it sounds good in theory, Charlie. What what about in practice? What's what what are some of the big projects you've actually been involved in that's actually applied this type of technology? Uh, I would say one of the biggest projects we've done is for Sundrop Farms in Australia. Hmm. Uh, we did. We started that about ten years ago, and we built a pilot in uh, Port Augusta, which is kind of the crossroads of Australia. Uh, it's in South Australia, but um, there's a railway that goes north south, and another one that goes east west, and where they cross is Port Augusta. Yeah, and, we're, we're, uh, we're based in South Australia here, so we know Port Augusta quite well. And the the GAN is the is the railway that goes north, and then yeah, you've got the main the main thoroughfare uh, from the east to the west coast. And that's right, the, the intersection is is Port Augusta. It's a yeah. a major crossroads. Well, the roads do that as well. And one of the interesting things is when when we were building the the pilot um, around two thousand and ten. We had all these trucks turn up, which were going from Adelaide into the outback, delivering stuff to the mining communities and coming back empty. And they, they stopped and said, look, if you want anything taken down to Adelaide, let us know. And that proved to be the key to the success in many ways, because we had the infrastructure set up um, for, for moving the stuff around. Because I think if you know Port Augusta at all, you probably 
would not consider it to be a good place for agriculture. <laughs> well, it's pretty dry. It's pretty dry, though, isn't it? There's a lot of salt bush, but there's not much else. There's salt bush and salt bush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and it gets about 350 millimeters of rain a year. Yeah, um, but the evapotranspiration is about ten times that. So the rainfall doesn't really do very much good for, for growing crops because it just evaporates away. But if you put it in, in an environment that is cooler, more humid, uh, a little bit sheltered from the wind and sheltered from the sun, then that 350 uh, millimeters of rain is enough to grow a crop. Hmm. Just uh, it equates to one liter a square meter a day, which is which is okay for most crops. So Port Augusta, not not only being uh, a kind of crossroads for transport and the potential then to transport the crop back to, you know, major city like Adelaide, and then the uh, the networks of transportation from there, the international and national transports uh, from there, but also the, uh, the the temperature profile. You, you do you are in the the wind shadow of the Flinders uh, just there as well. Um, and you've also got access, I guess, to the Gulf, haven't you? So you've got access to uh, seawater and access to uh, a lot of sunshine as well. Um, that was the main reason for choosing it, actually. We, we, we started off, uh, we had an investor who wanted to invest in this project in Australia. Mm. And we thought, where's the best place to do it? And um, we started looking at Broome, actually, in Western Australia. Uh, because we, what we wanted was somewhere by the coast, very hot, with a predictable wind um, and extreme temperatures. And Broome looked quite promising, but it's a very long way from everywhere, and there aren't many people who live there. So we looked around a bit further, thought maybe around the Perth region, possibly. Um, but Port Augusta ended up being favourite because it is the hottest, sunniest, but it's the outback. Uh, but it's also in close proximity to seawater because that's the top of the Spencer Gulf. So mm. that was ideal. Mm. So, and, and basically, the Sundrop Farm is basically an off-grid farm. It uses, uses solar power to generate the energy, and then that drives the desalination from the Gulf uh, seawater that comes into it, the system. It, exactly. So it's a bit more complicated than that because Port Augusta also gets cold in the winter. It can go down mm. to zero. And so the, to, to get uh, year-round productivity, we also need to heat the greenhouse. Um, so it is in a, it's, it's a conventional hothouse type of greenhouse in the sense that we have heating, um, which, again, it comes from uh, solar collectors. And we use the, the, the heat in the winter uh, to heat the greenhouse, and we use the heat in the summer to produce fresh water. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it, it, it is an amazing success story uh, and one which, uh, I mean, there's, a, there's almost a, a fable around uh, the choice of uh, Port Augusta as the location uh, in the world for this kind of high-tech uh, glasshouse being uh, one of the locations with uh, the most sunny days, you know, uh, access to seawater, access to markets, uh, and also uh, access to population uh, for, for, for jobs and opportunity as well. Um, so where, where, where else might you uh, locate a high-tech glasshouse like this? Where else uh, around the world would be a suitable location? Without, uh, without we, giving away too many secrets of uh, the next major plan. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the next major plan has already happened. We've, we've actually built a, um, a similar but completely different greenhouse in uh, Somaliland, which is in the Horn of Africa. 
and the reason for selecting the Horn of Africa, it is the, a part of the world uh, which suffers possibly most from water insecurity. And when you have water insecurity, you have food insecurity. When you've got food insecurity, you've got security insecurity. So it's, it is, it's a very fragile uh, fragile part of the world. And we just started working uh, as, a, as a result of that project on a new one in Yemen, um, which, again, is um, probably one of the most disastrous places in the world at this time because of this the civil war that's going on. But this conflict that comes, uh, the conflict in the Horn of Africa, the conflict in Yemen, the conflict in Syria, in North Africa, a lot of it is related to water. Although people don't describe it as such, that when, you, when you're short of water, you're short of food, and then what do you do? You know, it, it, uh, it, it, you can, you, people have often said the next war will be over water. Mm. But in fact, there have been over 500 conflicts over water in the last decade. And they center on that region. They center on the Horn of Africa, Yemen, Middle East, North Africa, because, because it is such a delicate, scarce resource. And we're likely to see these types of conflicts, the next conflict horizon really around water increase because of climate change driving uh, those water-dependent uh, issues but also population increase uh, within some of those regions as well. So these types of uh, high-tech glasshouses can also help alleviate some of those conflicts. Is that, is that right? Is that, is that the hope? I, I, I believe that is the case. Um, and our focus is, well, actually, we've picked up some of the work that you've done, the Federated States of Degradia, um, <laughs> the, 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 the degraded lands that we're talking about, um, whether it's North Africa, uh, the Horn of Africa, uh, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, these kind of places, um, they are now much drier than they used to be. Uh, and that's partly because of population growth. And it's partly because of irrigation, using groundwater for uh, irrigating crops, which which um, Yemen is a good example. Ye- Yemen is a country that gets quite a lot of rainfall. And it's drained itself dry in the last 60 years by overpumping. Um, so people realized back in the 50s that if you irrigated fields with water from a borehole, you could get a, you could grow more crop. Um, but if you take water out of the ground fast and it comes in, that water table is going to drop. So there are now wells in, uh, in Yemen that are over a kilometer deep. I mean, it's completely mm. nuts, you know. So the groundwater is completely shot. Mm. And if you if you take water out to a depth below sea level, then you get mm. seawater intrusion, which kills off any possibility of agriculture. Mm. And we see this happening uh, all around the world. California is a good example. Um, and then you break the water cycle, so the crop fails. You get less transpiration. You get less rainfall, and it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. And it's called uh, – it's not just climate change. It's global. It, it's desertification. It is, it is human-induced um, over-exploitation of a very fragile resource. Particularly in these drier regions where uh, agriculture it is already on the edge. You've got low low levels of rainfall, you've got fragile soils, uh, uh, and you're, you're close to the desert, so that advancing desert and the desertification uh, issues that come with that. You're, you're always on the on the knife edge of survival uh, exactly. with, with some of these locations. Yeah. Exactly. 
Exactly. Um, exactly. But, but so, so, so my mantra is very simply just add water. It's a climate recipe. Yeah. And we're not short of water. No. It just needs to be done in a sensible, practical, pragmatic way. So what's the best way to start adding water back in uh, to these systems? Well, it was about a decade ago that a, a paper came out uh, from NASA, actually, um, called Irrigated Afforestation of the Sahara and Australian Deserts as an end-to-end global warming. And it's it's an interesting paper. It's, it's an academic paper. It's just it's, it's a modelling exercise. And, <laughs> it's not a bestseller. It, you can't buy it in the local bookshop. No, it, it's <laughs> it's not exactly. Although it has been it's it's been well sort of well cited. Yeah, yeah, times. yeah, yeah. And and I picked up on that. Um, and it, it is sort of it's pie in the sky thinking, if you like. You know, who's going to irrig- who's going to irrigate eucalyptus trees across Australia and across North Africa? But if you if you if you switch that around the other way a little bit and think, well, where is it needed most, and where will it be of most benefit, uh, and then you bolt on to that, you have initiatives like the, the Great Green Wall of China, where they're trying to build a, 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 a forest of trees from east to west, um, and it's it's not had great success because, of course, it's too arid and it's too dry, and it's very difficult to persuade people to do things when they don't see the immediate benefit to themselves. And so I've become a, a big fan of this um, forest farming kind of movement where you plant trees and you plant vegetables and you plant fruit and you plant all sorts of, all sorts of things together um, to create as much diversity as possible and to give you as much protection as possible from strong winds, from depleted soils, from uh, lack of nutrients and all of these kind of things, and just bring back nature in a way that is practical and pragmatic and useful and people can see the immediate benefit. Hmm. So so it's not just a green wall, it's a useful green wall with food and with With, shelter and uh, with all these ecosystem services that we talk about and benefits to people. uh, And then you can see the reason for doing these types of initiatives and then you get the uptake. Is that the the rationale? That's that's exactly it. You know, people know you might look at a field and think, oh, that's what agriculture is. But actually, uh, a field is, is, is a very modern invention. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the forest farming idea goes back to Neanderthal times. It's, it's people mm. made clearings in forests and grew a few crops and plants and vegetables and stuff and kept the trees and kept a bit of this and a bit of that and found that everything all sort of fed into each other. Everything, uh, the biodiversity of all of that, um, each each plant feeds the other in, a, in, in one way or another. Uh, the yeah. idea of clearing the whole lot so that you've got a field as far as the eye can see and a tractor driving up and down it is a very modern invention. Yeah. And I think a lot of a lot of Africa has become desertified because of that approach, especially sort of colonial regions like Senegal, you know, Morocco, where where the idea was that oh, you know, modern productivity, you've got to clear the lot. Uh and do it on a big scale with big machines. Um, and I think that we're now seeing the folly of that approach. And we're certainly seeing that within uh, Australia. We're seeing the limitations, I think, of some of the 
the broad acre farming uh, practices that have been brought in uh, uh, to uh, fragile uh, soil systems here. And also here in Australia, what we are seeing is a kind of uh, a, a surge in practices like regenerative agriculture, uh, which are really aiming to uh, restore it. The basis is really around soil health uh, and being able to work with and restore soil health. I mean, it does help that you have uh, quite a, a burgeoning market uh, with, with carbon and with bud ground carbon and soil carbon is coming through as a potential market driver. Now, those those kind of systems help. But once you can get carbon back into the soils, you also increase uh, water holding uh, capacity uh, and then uh, you drive uh, the, the fertility back through the system. So I, I think globally, we are starting to see a reevaluation of many of these farming systems back to systems which are probably more sustainable uh, in nature. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the keys to this is going to be what I said earlier. People won't, it's difficult to persuade people to do things if they don't see a personal benefit. Uh, but if carbon credits starts to become a sensible thing that people can apply for and harvest and cover at least the costs of this approach so that they, they can see a monetary value, in, in putting the carbon back in the soil and restoring things to the way they were, then we've got a lot more chance of success. Uh, and now it's going to be a very delicate issue going forwards on what is the value of carbon. You know, people talk about people are building machines that suck carbon out of the air <laughs> uh, uh, and refrigerate it and compress it and pump it underground and think that you know they're going to store it there. Uh, for the next thousand years and the cost of this is several hundred dollars a, a ton but people are doing it seriously they, you know, you know, people you know, bill gates is investing in these sort of things yeah um but trees have been doing this for an awful long time they're very good at it they're just a, a little bit slow uh but they're very good at doing it you know over over centuries over, uh, over millennia if you like and they've been doing it for the past three million years so it's it's a pretty good solution yeah, so uh, certainly I'm a big fan of trees. I think uh, trees are, are part of the solution uh, to to some of these issues. Uh, yeah, probably been doing it for at least half a half a billion years. I think if we look back through the record, which which is great. Let me just get a great quote from George Bernard Shaw, uh, Irish yeah. playwright. He said, "No man manages his affairs as well as a tree does." <laughs> I think I'm going to remember that one and use it. <laughs> it's, it it's a good one. <laughs> So if trees are the answer and if if we if trees go back and trees are, uh in in the form of you know an agroforestry system uh where where you have food production you have uh you know soil uh integrity you uh cover a hillside with with trees and uh the rainfall uh, returns in those kind of systems as well um if if this is the solution and if if food production can increase are you seeing an uptake of these methods? Are, are they starting to be trialled in, in different locations around the world where you're working? Sadly, I can't say yes. I'd like to. Um, we get smatterings of interest and we're working in various parts of the world. But generally speaking, um, the great juggernaut of uh, human society is, in my view, uh, moving in the other direction. Yeah. So there, there is, there's a colossal uphill a task ahead of us to sort of to make these things work and to make them viable and to make it cost effective and pragmatic and to fit within this overall uh, climate change mess that we find ourselves in. But I think that's that's possibly where the hope is because that is now 
gradually, and it's terribly slow, but that is gradually becoming the focus of not just where we need to put our attention, but actually where we need to invest. Yeah. And and once we have developed uh, solutions like these, we start to see uh, often opportunities for these to be adopted. Look, Charlie, it's been a a really uh, fascinating discussion. We've kind of gone on a journey uh, from kind of engineering solutions through to natural engineering solutions, which are trees and the the hydrological performance that they do, you know, from uh, millions of years of uh, of evolutionary selection uh, through transpiration as well. And to be able to harness those uh, into sustainable uh, production systems is uh, is a really good story to, to hear about. Great. Thank you. That was Charlie Payton, the founder of Seawater Greenhouse, speaking with Professor Andy Lowe. You can listen to more of Andy's conversations on the Food Futurist podcast found on your preferred podcast app. And you can also find an earlier interview we did with Sundrop Farms back in November of 2020, who utilises Seawater Greenhouse's design here in Australia in Port Augusta by simply heading to our Vocag podcast feed. Thanks for listening today. My name is Steve Honor. And until next time, have a great day.